Well, we've come in our series on the Ten Commandments to the Seventh Commandment this morning. This is, a, in some ways, a, a difficult commandment to talk about, but a very important uh, one. Uh, so we're going to read the Seventh Commandment in Exodus 20. But I'm also going to, and I, I didn't uh, get this into the bulletin, fortunately, but I'm also going to read Proverbs chapter 5. So from uh, Exodus 20, and also we'll read all of chapter 5 of Proverbs, which uh, very much uh, opens up this commandment for us as Solomon is speaking of these things to his, to his son. So here God's holy, infallible word this morning. Uh, from Exodus 20, uh, just verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And then Proverbs chapter 5. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of your mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was also in, almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, st- streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone, and not for, the, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. And our reading there this morning. I grew up in uh, western Pennsylvania on nuclear power, just 11 miles from a nuclear power plant. Uh, it was actually the site of the first uh, fully, uh, full-scale uh, peacetime nuclear power plant in the United States, uh, commissioned there by President Eisenhower, and the power plant that's there today is, is still fully operational. And I've uh, grown in, in interest, fascination with um, nuclear energy to some degree in, in recent, recent years. Nuclear power uses uh, just tiny little pellets, little pellets that are put into long rods, and the rods are bundled uh, together. Uh, but it, this, this whole bunch of, of the fuel that's used for the energy, you could still fit in your house, maybe even in, in your living room, and it, and it lasts for a year or two years. Um, this power plant I grew up near is not an especially large one, 
Uh, its, its output is rated at 1.85 gigawatts. What does that mean? That's, that's the equivalent to 2.5 million horses running full power all day long. Uh, it's the equivalent of 650 of those uh, horrible big uh, wind turbines running full tilt 24 hours a day. Uh, it's the equivalent of 18,000 tons of coal burned per day. That would be on a train, it would be a three and a half mile train full of coal, uh, coal burned uh, every day. Uh, all of that with, with clean, that's no, no burning, uh, no uh, carbon, uh, constant energy, uh, all from a relatively incredibly small amount of fuel that just keeps going and going without, without being replenished for a long time. It's an almost unbelievable source of energy for good, uh, for giving heat and light to homes, to powering uh, factories and hospitals and all sorts of technology and so on. But of course we all know that, that nuclear power uh, is, uh, has equally incredible and terrifying potential for destruction, uh, not only in terms of accidents, but intentionally. Right? It's only, uh, thankfully, only been used intentionally that way one time uh, in Japan, well, two bombs in 1945, uh, but almost 200,000 people killed just from those two bombs. The United States today has declared at least 3,700 nuclear warheads. Um, and consider just the, the Navy deployment of our nuclear warheads. We have, the United States has 14 nuclear submarines that are uh, constantly deployed, secretly wandering around the oceans of the world. Each of those 14 submarines carries 20 missiles, and each of those missiles can carry five uh, 475-kiloton warheads, uh, and each of those can go to a separate target after it's fired. Uh, 475-kiloton warheads. The, the ones dropped in Japan were about 13 uh, kilotons. Uh, so that's 280 missiles just in our submarines uh, each 154 times more powerful than what was dropped uh, in Japan. And that entire arsenal can be fired in less than seven minutes. Uh, the, the destructive capacity of nuclear power is, is genuinely impossible to, to even comprehend. I bring this up as we come to the seventh commandment. Last week we discussed the sixth commandment. Uh, it's widely accepted, the Sixth Commandment is, at least on the surface, uh, the outward easy application of it. It's wrong to kill other people unjustly or harm them outwardly. But the Seventh Commandment is, is widely scorned, uh, set aside more than any other command in, in the, the second table of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 through 10. Uh, the, the idea that strict faithfulness in marriage and uh, strict sexual norms would be regulated, uh, punishable in the Old Testament by death. Um, that grates against modern secular assumptions more than just about anything uh, in, in Christianity. And so as we come to the question of why, why is God so concerned for this? Uh, why is this one of the Ten Commandments? Why is this included here? I want you to think about massive power for good. Uh, and massive potential for destruction at the same time, just like nuclear energy. It applies to marriage and sexuality. 
Uh, these things are so fun- fundamental, so foundational to the family, to God's design for good in his creation, for his design for society. Uh, they have to do with what is a great gift of God. But the perversion of these things, the perversion of marriage, holds potential for great harm uh, and great destruction because of that. So the seventh commandment protects what is a great gift, a great good. It protects uh, from great destruction, uh, great harm. And so that's where I want to begin this morning, uh, thinking about what's prohibited in the seventh commandment as a protection from what's what's harmful against God's design. Looking at number one in your outline, what, what does God prohibit in the seventh commandment? We could say it briefly this way, giving away what belongs to marriage alone. Uh, and marriage as defined clearly in the scriptures as one man and one woman. Most explicitly, the seventh commandment speaks to uh, explicit outward you know, sexual relations being shared with someone outside your marriage. Uh, it's designed by God for a husband and a wife alone uh, to have kids uh, for their relationship, uh, for, their, for their enjoyment. We'll, we'll come back to that in, in point number two. But again, we've talked about how each of the commandments speaks to um, not only a, a, an ultimate sin, a, a culminating sin in that category like murder, uh, but also everything that, that leads to everything that tends toward that sin. We, we saw that last week with murder, beginning with just the, the, the slightest invisible bitterness uh, in your heart towards someone else. And, and Jesus addresses this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is teaching this principle here, and he's he's insisting that just that, that, that spark, that seed of this sin, not only does it have the potential in any one of us to grow and become more outward toward what the seventh commandment addresses explicitly, um, that, that thought, that seed itself is also sin. Uh, even the thought in that direction is, is taking what belongs in marriage alone and putting it somewhere else. We read Proverbs 5 just a minute ago uses the imagery there of taking the precious water in, in your cistern and dumping it out in the streets. It's, it's desiring something that's not rightfully yours. Desiring something that's destructive of God's will and his design. And so, clearly in Jesus' teaching in the scriptures, uh, lust and everything else that tends toward adultery is prohibited in the seventh commandment. Uh, The Bible uses, for example, the word porneia, uh, obviously, which we get uh, our word pornography from. It has broad application to all sorts of sexual sin that that violates God's design for marriage. Uh, These things apply to those who are not married as well. Um, you also may not give away or lust after what belongs only uh, in marriage. Um, whether married or not, a, a huge piece of this category in our day is pornography. Um, a, a key and massive problem area, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, another sinful tendency in, in, in the direction of adultery would simply be getting socially, emotionally Close with someone of the opposite sex, not in your marriage. Um, again, 
This applies to those who are not married as well, unless you're, unless you're intentionally appropriately moving towards marriage, getting someone in, close to someone in, in that way and for that purpose. I, I think herein is a, a biblical principle of dating. That is, an, unless you're in a position in terms of maturity or, or life stage to be actively and purposefully and actually uh, moving towards marriage, and that's not true if you're 5 or if you're 12 or, or probably even older, getting close physically or socially or emotionally with someone, dating or whatever you're going to call it, uh, has no biblical sanction or really point to it, right? and, and carries certainly much potential for harm. Uh, I think the only, the only man-woman relationships known to the Bible are those in the family, right? parents and children, brothers and sisters, friendships, uh, and, and marriage. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1 has application here, where Paul says that uh, believers are to relate to older women as what? Mothers. To relate to younger women as sisters with all purity, Paul says there. That is, an, unless you are of age and maturity to get engaged and married, and, and, married, and that's your intention, um, and move towards that. that. That girl is not your girlfriend. She's not your sexual partner. Uh, she's your sister, Paul says. Uh, whatever leads us away from God's design and purpose in marriage. Uh, again, uh, Jesus draws our attention to our minds, uh, fantasizing, uh, maybe particularly uh, for men, or, or idealizing, longing through romantic books or movies about what you don't have or wish you had emotionally uh, or um, relationally with a man, maybe particularly for women. Uh, Paul states the standard this way in Ephesians 5. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you, as is, impro- as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, uh, not even named among you. Again, that, that standard is absolutely intolerable uh, for many in our culture. The, the common attitude, the common response uh, to God's design here is, that's none of your business, right? These things are private. Uh, and of course, there is a, a private nature to it, but uh, what's the harm? Or, or this is my very identity that's being attacked. You know, suggesting what I can or can't do with my own body. Let me do what feels good. Love is love. Right, that's a common attitude. What's the harm? Well, we know that what God says is right because he says it's right and it reflects his character and his design of his world or what he says is wrong. But the Bible also insists that we see that God's law in this area of the seventh commandment is is a great protection from what is so harmful, uh, what is destructive. So whether actual adultery or fornication before marriage or pornography or a moment of invisible lust, these things are demonstrably destructive uh, in our lives. These sins destroy marriages. Probably all recognize that. Most marriages that end involve some kind of sin in this area. These sins destroy families and harm children in myriad ways. I mean, just 
take secular statistics, that's, that's easily demonstrable, undeniable. If it's destructive of families, it's destructive of society. It's God's design for society is that families are foundational. Um, much of this, and, and pornography in particular, degrades women. Um, sexual sin destroys bodies through disease. And less, less quantitatively, but more severely qualitatively, it destroys consciences, destroys relationships with the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 5, we read a few minutes ago, speaks in some part to this. It speaks to all kinds of danger and, and damage. It, uh, Solomon describes for his son there sexual sin as a romance in the grave. Uh, he says it saps your strength, it brings great guilt and shame. Uh, he explains it ruins your life and it brings spiritual death is part of his point. Uh, Christopher Ashe in his book on marriage argues that like any secret sin, uh, these eat away like some noxious chemical at the one who commits it. Uh, Proverbs 6, we read Proverbs 5 earlier, Proverbs 6 comes back to this theme and uh, asks this, these rhetorical questions about sexual sin. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will be unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. God's wisdom says repeatedly, you, you can't avoid consequences. Destructive consequences, even if you think you get away with it, which is often perhaps the case, right? No one's walked in on you or seen your browsing history or knows your secret thoughts. But the Bible insists at least you can't escape spiritual harm. And, and probably harm to your relationships and your perception of those relationships. Solomon would have us ask, can you really entertain those fantasies and not see it affect your attitude towards your spouse. Can you really click on that and not see it affect your preparedness for a healthy relationship and marriage in the future? Or see it affect your relationship of repentance with the Lord? Or, or, or thankfulness for his grace? Can you really allow the, the soul-destroying smut of a, a show that is an absolute mockery of godly romance. Shows like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or others up on your TV screen and think that it doesn't pervert your perception of relationships. We, we cannot take our cues from our society about what is destructive and what is not destructive. You know, it's not, going back to nuclear power, it's not really politically possible right now to build more power plants. Uh, legislatures all across the country, uh, federal and state, look at the risks of nuclear power plants, and I would argue they're arguably small, and we should probably be building more of them, but that's not in the Bible, that's my opinion. Um, but they look at those risks, real risks, and say no, no more can be built. Right? It's impossible. And then these same legislatures, every single one of them across the entire country, Whatever political view looks at the unspeakable destruction of the massive pornography industry 
the destruction that's been wrought on families and marriages and bodies and workplaces and women, and they all say, that's fine, go for it. We we can't take our cues about what's destructive uh, from our society. Note Jesus' words immediately following what I read already from Matthew 5. We read, uh, anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. And then Jesus says immediately, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Doesn't lust begin with the eyes, generally. He says, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He connects the lust of the eyes with with hell. It's the kind of secret sin that has the power, in a sense, to to drag you into hell. Some of the strictest, highest safety protocols that exist are in place around nuclear energy. A great power for good or for destruction, if not strictly and carefully protected. And Jesus is saying here, do whatever it takes to root this out of your heart. To protect yourself from this. Uh, Pictured graphically in terms of gouging out your eyes. Because of the massive potential for harm. Let's consider secondly, the seventh commandment is a protection of what is good. What is powerfully good. There have been Christians who have concluded uh, throughout history that, that sexual relations are shameful. At least they're not to be talked about or to be avoided in some way. I had a, have a friend, an older friend, who told me about 30 years ago, probably, he, uh, he and his wife, he, he was an associate pastor in a church, he and his wife stood up in the front one day to announce that they were expecting their first child. And his sweet old grandmother was offended by that. Uh, to, to her sensitivities, announcing that publicly is to bring up the fact that you and your wife did something to create that reality, and that's not appropriate. In the Middle Ages, it was, it was seen as a sort of icky necessity and was banned by the Roman Catholic Church uh, increasingly on holy days, such that uh, by the time of, and, and Martin Luther writes about this, by the time of Martin Luther, there was 183 days in the year that had this ban on them. And of course, celibacy is required uh, to this day of priests. But biblically... Uh, Biblically, sex is a great good gift, a great good and a gift of God to be used and enjoyed within God's purposes. Uh, So what is it for? What is it for? Three things, biblically, uh, very briefly. Uh, The one is procreation for children, right? It's God's design uh, and purpose uh, for bringing children to the world and his purpose for children to be raised by a mother and a father, a married couple. Uh, a second purpose is a relational purpose. It, it's to bind a husband and wife together. Uh, we, we traditionally have spoken of, of consummating a marriage in, in that sense. Uh, Tim Keller speaks of it as the, the covenant cement of marriage. That's probably reflected in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul's uh, we read it the, earlier this morning, Paul's requirement on spouses that they come together in this way, uh, aside from the, the purpose of, of procreation. And then thirdly, there's, there's clearly a purpose for it in the scriptures of enjoyment and of pleasure. Uh, Proverbs 5 speaks to this that we read earlier. Uh, Solomon says to his son, you know, Here, here's what you're not to do. 
but then he speaks to the intoxicating delights in your own wife. Uh, Song of Solomon chapter 1 and especially chapter 5, very explicit celebrations uh, of sexual delight. Uh, but the full goodness and purpose of it is, is only enjoyed fully and rightly within marriage. And strict boundaries protect that goodness, that power for good. Uh, the seventh commandment and all that it implies. There are all, ways, all kinds of ways that marriage can only be a relationship of deep trust and love and joy um, uh, in the context of, of strict faithfulness and trust and truthfulness and love. And the seventh commandment, violations of all kinds, uh, violate that deep joy and trust and love that's intended. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis has to say uh, about the seventh commandment, protecting what is good and God's design. Uh, He writes, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union from all other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate the pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. Obviously, eventually that would be harmful, be deadly. But there's an even bigger aspect to God's good design in this. And that's this, that marriage and and the absolute faithfulness within marriage is a picture of God's covenant faithfulness. Marriage is a picture of God's covenant faithfulness. It it pictures the exclusivity of that relationship. It it pictures God's absolute faithfulness to us. In some ways, the seventh commandment is parallel to the first few commandments um, about absolute covenant loyalty to God. Uh, The one true God, worshiping him alone. No idols. God says, don't bring anyone, anything else into this relationship with us. And so frequently in in the Bible, when God uh, uses an illustration um, of his covenant faithfulness to his people, what is it? It's marriage. He's a faithful husband, he says. And similarly, when God goes for an illustration of his people's unfaithfulness to him, What is that metaphor often? It's adultery, right? An adulterous people. Uh, Marital faithfulness in marriage or before marriage, if you're not married yet, is tied closely to and is in some sense an expression of uh, our relationship with God. It's tied closely in the scriptures. In, In Psalm 51, when David goes to pen a repentance for his sin with Bathsheba, He knows he sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah. But how does he describe it in Psalm 51? He says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. It was ultimately a sin against the Lord, his relationship with the Lord. Uh, It's similar to what Joseph said. When when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, what was his response? He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Against the Lord, he said. In the New Testament, it becomes clear that marriage is an expression, an example, and picture of our relationship to King Jesus. And and Paul makes that most clear in Ephesians 5. We read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, where 
because of this, Paul's call to sexual purity there, he says, don't you realize it's like you've brought the Lord Jesus into bed with a prostitute? A horrible thought. Because of God's design and purpose, uh, sexual purity, again, in marriage or out of marriage, before marriage, is one way we live out our faithfulness to Christ. One way we picture his faithfulness to us by God's design. So later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will say, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a spotless bride to Christ. Again, using that that imagery. So how do we live that out then? How do we pursue this good that God has designed for us uh, positively? Uh, we, We may be more readily think about what we're, we ought not to do relative to the seventh commandment. That's important, of course. But what ought we to do? Uh, looking at number three on your outline here. We could summarize it in, in part uh, by saying this. The seventh commandment requires nurturing your own marriage. Nurturing your marriage. As with the other commands, we, we do better to run towards what is good than simply just trying to avoid doing what is wrong. We have to think about both. It's important and good to think about both. But we will find we have to think less about what we ought not to be doing if we're running towards what is good, running towards God's design, uh, actively showing love and affection and care in your marriage, uh, fostering emotional attachment to your spouse, uh, fighting things that, that create distance between you, And to those, again, not letting off the hook, anyone who's not married, uh, especially those who are not yet married or may hope to be or anticipate being, um, be preparing for marriage. Be preparing for marriage. Of course, this will look different at at different ages and so on, but don't do that simply by avoiding sin in this area. You ought to do that. But but prepare for marriage. Sometimes I hear young adults say, Oh, I'm uninterested in marriage. I'm, I'm not concerned about that. I'm not into boys or girls, whatever. There's nothing mature about that statement. Uh, it's very immature. Uh, you're setting yourself up for marriage failure. You should be thinking about it. People spend tons of money to go to college or other things and prepare for careers and, and things and think about these things extensively. And then you say, oh, I'm not concerned about marriage. It's far more important. Uh, be preparing for it, praying towards it. It's probably God's will for you. Uh, and, and you fail to prepare to your own harm. Uh, to all of us, again, actively guard yourself in this area. The, the larger catechism on the seventh commandment, listing, uh, listing things to be avoided, uh, lists idleness. Why does it list idleness? I think the, the reference connected there is probably David's sin, again, with Bathsheba. The account in 1 Samuel is very clear, uh, very concerned for us to see that David was not out doing his kingly duties. He was not out doing what he ought to have been doing. He was idle. He was wandering around with nothing to do when he saw Bathsheba. The lesson there is pursue what you ought to be doing. Pursue what you ought to be doing. Guard yourself. Men particularly, I think, ought to consider... Uh, accountability relative to the internet, especially. Um, uh, I think most should have something like covenant eyes, if, if you're familiar with that, or something like that. 
Uh, if you don't know about that, ask me about it. Uh, guard your children. I'm kind of mixing the negative and the positive a little bit here. Um, but, but positively, with your children, talk about marriage. Talk about intimacy. Talk about dangers in this area. Uh, be open. Obviously, again, in age-appropriate ways that will vary. Uh, we can't shield our children from everything. Uh, but we need to guard them uh, in, in certain ways, negatively as well. Maybe boys especially, guarding their eyes. Uh, statistics, again, about pornography are, are mind-boggling and sickening and ought to be a massive warning uh, to those of us, again, especially with, with boys. One out of ten nine-year-old boys have viewed it. Seventy percent of boys have spent more than 30 minutes searching it. Uh, Barna research from not long ago uh, concluded 70% of youth pastors say that teens have come to them just in the last 12 months struggling uh, with pornography. 70%. It's, it's a big problem in the church. Uh, not the same problem it is in the world, uh, but it's still a huge struggle even in the church. Uh, such that I could say confidently, it's statistically impossible that there are not men here in the room struggling with this. Uh, guard yourself. Run towards what is good. Again, with your children, model a faithful marriage for them, positively. We could go on with positive, practical suggestions, but I want to finish with um, finish this point with, with what's the most important and most powerful one. I want to draw a parallel between the remedy that the father gives in, in Proverbs 5 to his son uh, relative to sexual temptation. Remember, what, what, right in the middle of the passage there, one of the key remedies that he said, he said, be exhilarated always with her love, right? with your spouse's love. And it's not evident that the, the son in Proverbs 5 is even married yet, necessarily. Uh, be exhilarated, or it's translated intoxicated or captivated with her love. And is that not parallel exactly to how we maintain faithfulness to Jesus in our relationships, or in our sexuality, or in our desires, uh, be captivated by the love of Christ. Let him captivate your heart. Uh, never stop deepening your sense of wonder at the love of God in the gospel. Uh, the amazement of how depraved and undeserving and unlovely you were, and yet he loved, he loves you. With the deepest, most perfect love it's it's again not just trying to avoid something but but ultimately being satisfied in that that will leave you uh, not looking where you don't belong i think that idea is a great comfort for those who have been sinned against in this area as well be captivated by the love of christ he loves you perfectly and unconditionally he will never be faithless. He will always keep his promises. Well, fourthly, finally, I want to talk for a moment about God's provision of grace. God's provision of grace relative to sexual sin. All of us have failed this commandment in various ways. Right? Whether in purity, in, private, in our private lives, or we've uh, failed in our marriages, if not in adultery and failing to nurture uh, love and affection and trust as we ought to. Some have maybe failed uh, more outwardly, damagingly. Some perhaps uh, are failing significantly or struggling right now. 
And we are bombarded with temptations and perversions of God's design for marriage and sexuality constantly in our culture. And so I want to close with three points of the grace that God gives in this area. So for those who have failed, God gives first the grace of forgiveness. The grace of forgiveness unconditionally, freely in the death of Jesus in the place of repentant believers. Such that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6 again, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and the list goes on. None will inherit the kingdom of God. Then Paul says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. For those who have failed, God gives, secondly, the grace of resistance. He gives the grace of resistance. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That doesn't mean escape on your own power necessarily without accountability of some kind. But he's provided these things and you have the Holy Spirit at work in you. Listen to him. Uh, Turn to him. And thirdly, for those who have failed, God gives the grace of sanctification. Sanctification by union with Christ, not not only resisting temptation, but growing, but overcoming, making progress in holiness. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You have died and you have been raised with Christ. So let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you again this morning for your word, for your uh, design of this great gift of marriage. We pray that you would help us to guard it, that you would uh, keep us from sin as we grow in love and devotion and gratitude uh, toward you, ultimately. We we ask that you would uh, protect our children and the good gift of marriage for them as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.